All right. So today I have the pleasure of speaking with Jamie Plater. I first met Jamie during high school when she was working as the student trustee for the Lakehead District School Board. Jamie has consistently been a strong voice for all young people and, and underrepresented communities, and I cannot wait to hear more about what she's been up to in the past few years. Usually when I'm writing these introductions, I find it rather straightforward, but to be perfectly honest, um, I don't even really know where to start. Um, Jamie has so much experience and so many credentials, and as tough as it'll be, I'm going to try and showcase some of her, just some of her hard work in a few paragraphs, because she has so much. Um, so Jamie's currently pursuing her Bachelor of Arts in Political Science at McGill University in Montreal, Quebec. Um, she's currently working as a research intern for McGill, for, sorry, for the McGill Initiative for, in Neurodiversity, or MIND, M-I-N-D, um, research group. She has also been a research assistant with CoronaNet Research Group since the beginning of this year. Uh, Jamie is the internal vice president of the McGill Canadian Stu Studies Association for Undergraduate Studies. Um, she's also an educational facilitator in, for the Montreal Oral School for the Deaf. Um, this is only a, really a handful of Jamie's numerous experience, experiences and positions. I can't really sum it up in a few paragraphs. I tried my best. Um, so without further ado, I'd like to welcome Jamie Plater to the podcast. I can't wait to learn more about your research journey today. How's it going? It's going super well. Thanks, Ben. I'm very excited to be here and thank you for having me. Of course, it's uh, it's definitely been a while, I think, since we've spoke. Um, it has. Before the <laughs> pandemic, but uh, yeah, it's been a few years, so um, it's going to be really interesting to, to hear a bit about what you've been doing and uh, yeah, um, just chat. So I guess um, what I like to do is I like, as anyone who regularly watches this podcast, which I don't think is, is very many people, but um, for those who do, I tend to divide this into a few sections. So. The first section typically is going to be talking about um, just some basic research stuff. So let's get started there. Um, how did you get into research? What's uh, like what interests you about research? Hmm, that's a very good question. So in my second year, as everyone knows, the COVID pandemic obviously impacted our studies in universities as everything moved online. I spent a lot of time at home kind of not exactly knowing what to do with my time. Um, as I had a lot more time, I was only working part-time while I was in school at the time and had a few extracurriculars, but nothing major. And then I actually found information on CoronaNet on my university's internship page website and research website and decided to apply, not only because it was something I found interesting considering it involves coding policies that governments adopt in response to the COVID pandemic, but also because it was something I could do that made me feel as though I was helping something. I was contributing to something greater. And through my time at CoronaNet, I've gone, moved up the ladder a bit and spent some time coding and verifying policies and becoming responsible for groups of newer RAs. And I've just found that it's been really great to research something that I'm passionate about and spend time studying something that isn't exactly related to my course load because I do enjoy when I'm learning in school but also having the opportunity to do something on my own under the supervision of these professors is really interesting and for my internship with MIND it's just been a dream <laughs> honestly it took me a really long time to find uh, something to do over the summer I was applying for internships as all university students know finding an internship is not an easy task 
unless you're very well connected and at the time I was not. But finding this internship has just really transformed the way I see the value of research and the way I can see myself contributing to society as an academic. What do you think is the value? You said the word value of research. What do you think is the value of, of undergraduate students getting into research? What, what does it do for them? I think a lot of people, when they come into undergraduate degrees, specifically in a faculty like arts, there isn't exactly a great idea of what exists beyond undergrad. So when you finish undergrad, you know, you're going to law school, you're going to med school, or you're pursuing employment, and, or you're going to grad school just because that's the next step. But actually having the opportunity to get involved in research and explore quantitative analysis, qualitative analysis, um, different types of informant interviewing, and just being able to research things that you might not otherwise research in a classroom setting, really, in my case at least, has helped me determine that this is something I could see myself doing in the future or feeling more certain in your pathway leaving school and also getting to know professors, which is always useful. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I think I've interviewed quite a few people and most people that's one of the big things they say is, is get to know your professors. Um, kind of leads me into a, a little, I guess, some question there. Um, someone who say, Let's say, you know, they, they've heard what you said there and they're like, you know what, I kind of want to give research a try. Um, wh where do they go? Do you, do you suggest them going to somewhere within their university, looking for um, outside opportunities? What, what, what are your thoughts? You've done a bit of both. So um, what do you think? Everywhere. Look everywhere you can, basically. There's a lot of opportunities out there that people just don't know about. For example, at McGill, there's an internships art office for the Faculty of Arts. And I utilize their resources frequently. I've subscribed to their listserv, so every single posting that they receive, they send out through the listserv, so I have access to all of those postings. And then you just have an opportunity to read through all these different types of research internships or regular internships with governments or NGOs and figure out what you really want to do. But I also found it useful to, you know, browse LinkedIn, see if your mutual connections have anyone hiring or go through Indeed, look at government websites, and if there's a certain company or air aspect of society you're particularly interested in, look it up and see what comes up. For example, if you're interested in political science or you're studying political science, interested in politics, you know, look up the federal government. They have an internship program every summer you could apply for. But there's also different departments within the federal government that offer student placements throughout the summer and sometimes throughout the academic year. So you could kind of delve into that. But I think a great place to start is with your university. If you have any older classmates or classmates who have had experience, because every university is different, every university has different resources. So if you could find someone at your own school who has that experience and is able to guide you, that's excellent. Otherwise, I would go to academic affairs, internships office. If there's advising offices, they also have access to great resources sometimes. <laughs> um, just try to figure cast a wide net because there's going to be a lot of failure, a lot of, you know, not making it through interviews, rejection letters, but eventually you're going to find something. It's just a matter of when, not if. Exactly. Exactly. That's a really good point. Um, yeah. Research is like, it's, you know, it's tough, right? Sometimes it, it can be, it can be challenging. I think on many levels, um, 
especially like on the intellectual level, right? And the idea that you really have to think about what you're doing. Um, it, it's sort of like, it, and it's a, it's a, one of the things that people have told me, I don't know if you agree or if you can speak to it at all, but is that um, research tends to be a little bit more, how do you say, um, it, it, it's a completely different type of learning than say learning in a classroom, right? Um, it's kind of a, a type of learning that people haven't really been exposed to before. And, and um, it, it's typically, like I guess at a younger undergraduate level, right? They haven't really had that exposure. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's very true. I think there's a difference between classroom learning, and even though there's a big transition that occurs when you try to go from high school to university, within the university setting, there's so many different things that happen. And with research, the emphasis is really on experiential learning, right? Go, learning as you go, performing your own research, being checked by professors, and moving not exactly at your own pace, but at a pace that is a lot more flexible than, say, a classroom schedule. And it really is a different kind of engagement that is required. I don't need to, I don't know exactly which books or which articles I'm supposed to be reading or what I'm supposed to be writing about. It's something you kind of have to figure out as you go. For example, with my research with MIND, we've been researching since the end of June and our final plans have changed three or four times since because every new informant we interview has something different to say and it takes us in a completely different direction. And that's just because Academic literature, gray literature is one thing, actually conducting research and interviews and looking at statistics and data analysis is a completely different issue because you don't really know what you're expecting. You're just hoping to get something that will lead you to a certain conclusion or lead you to a different direction to pursue. Exactly. Like, and, and sometimes, you know, that's something that I think people don't really get is sometimes like when you're, I don't know, I'm, I'm a math student, right? And so when I'm when you're doing a math problem, it's like, oh yeah, let's just go to the back of the book and look at the answer, right? Um, yeah. And check if I got it right. And and when you're doing research, there isn't that doesn't exist, right? It's just like, it's just like, um, yeah, is this right? Uh, it seems kind of right. Or sometimes you you do all the do all the work, do some data analysis, maybe crunch some numbers, and it's like, oh, there's nothing here, you know, like it, it, there is no answer, right? It doesn't, you know, there's no trend, and and you're like, oh well. That really sucks, right? Um, can you tell me about a time that that's happened to you, um, where you've, you've crunched some numbers? I'm sure it's happened because it happens to everyone, or maybe it hasn't. But um, where you've you know done some work, done a put work into something, and then at the end of, of like a research journey like that, at the end it just kind of comes out like, oh well, that was a dead end. Yeah, I think since a lot of my research. So for, I'll give a bit of context. For my research with CoronaNet, it's more data entry than data analysis. My job as an RA mostly pertains to finding policies in relation to Ontario COVID policies and Ile-de-France COVID policies. But for my research with MIND and actually conducting research, uh, we've found a lot of interviewees disagree on certain concepts, which has led us to not only confusion, but also uncertainty about where to go from here. Because we're kind of looking at the Quebec, for a bit of context, we're looking at the treatment of individuals with in disabilities um, through the Quebec definition that refers to individuals with, on the autism spectrum, individuals with intellectual disabilities, and individuals with physical disabilities. And 
So we're kind of doing a survey of the system and an environmental scan of what is available, and then through informant interviews, creating recommendations to better improve access and the resources themselves pertaining to continuing education and employment services. And so a lot of the time we'll interview people and they will tell us that, oh, you know, this service is doing a really great job at doing this, but then we'll speak to someone who actually provides the service from that organization, they'll say, oh, actually, no, there's a lot wrong here. And so when you're trying to look for best practices, especially, it becomes especially, it becomes very difficult because you're hearing contradicting stories, and that makes it difficult to come to a conclusion without nuance. And nuance is a big, <laughs> big thing that's come up in our research, and it's important to address it when you write about it. But when you're trying to figure out how things are looking and how things work. It's very frustrating when you have, you go into an interview with a preconceived notion that something works in a particular way and then you hear that that's not the case. Then you're kind of, oh, we're back to square one. Where exactly do we go from here? Like, how am I supposed to find out more information from this if the person providing this service doesn't know what it's looking like? Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that pretty much sums it up. <laughs> I think that's everywhere in research in, in just about any, any field, right? Um, you're going to get that. Um, all right. So one last question, sort of in this area, um, and then we'll move in and sort of dive into your research. Um, so people, like, let's say people are, you know, so, say that someone listening is interested in research. Um, maybe they've done a little bit of googling and they've seen like tips and how to get into research, or they've done, you know, some of those basic things. They've talked to a few people. Um, and they've got, you know, the basic, like, sort of, I guess, if you want to call it like the, the, um, the stereotypical responses to, to all these things, right. Um, to like, what, how do you get into research? What do you do? Right. Um, what's one piece of advice you would give a young person interested in research that you think they have not heard yet? Feel free to take your time. <laughs> okay. Let me think about that a little bit. Hmm. Mm. I always like this question because every person I ask gives a completely different answer and it's like, it's great. <laughs> hmm. I think a piece of advice when looking for research that I wasn't really given in at the beginning is you can, you can start early, but it's also important to apply to things as they come up. So when you're looking for research internships, like, you know, or research in general, you email your profs, you apply for these positions. But also, a lot of positions will open randomly, and you kind of always need to be keeping an eye out for what's coming up if you're actively pursuing research opportunities. So, like, start early. But also, I started really early. I started in January 2021, and I didn't end up starting until the end of June. And I applied for this position I received at the beginning of June. So, you know, they tell you to start early, but you're, gonna, you're going to experience a lot of failure and a lot of rejection. That's just part of the process. If you're extremely fortunate and end up, you know, getting one of your first applications, congratulations. That is awesome. But it's also important to recognize that failure is normal. You're not any less intelligent. You're not any less of an academic. You're not more or less competent than another student just because you weren't selected for 
a certain position. Like, it feels like that, and it's really tough. I remember my first rejection. I cried for about an hour after receiving it because I was really looking forward to it and thought it was really cool research. But it's just everyone's looking for something different, and so you need to keep your options open as well when you're looking. Don't narrow your mindset so that you're only going to look at a certain type of research. Keep your mind open. Like, my research with mind is not exactly related to political science. It's something I was interested in, I found online. I was like, yeah, you know, why not give it a shot? And then here I am now considering writing my thesis as a continuation of this. So, it, you know, keep your mind open. And don't start early, but don't stop early, I guess. Way to say it. Well, it's interesting, too, because my, my, first, um, my first paper is currently being published. Um, I'm a, I'm a maths and computer science student. I'm a really theoretical guy. And I'm getting my first paper published in a medical journal. And it's like totally different, right? Completely a different place, right? And so, but like you said, you know, definitely don't, I don't think people should restrict themselves to a very specific um, focus. Um, yeah, like even if it's interdisciplinary, you can bring your skill set to a different discipline, right? Um, and that's always really awesome. Well, congratulations so, on your paper, by the way. And you. even just to like add on a bit, you know, everybody's always telling you, you need to get involved in your fields and that's what's going to get you into grad school. But in all honesty, when you're applying for grad school and you're writing your applications, it's going to make you even more of a unique candidate if you can refer to experiences that are different from those of your peers. So, exactly. you know. Exactly. I mean, like everyone... Well, I shouldn't say everyone. Everyone going into grad school has probably written their like undergrad thesis, right? Um, you know, it's not going to make you stand out um, unless you do like some really cool research. It's <laughs> it's pretty typical, right? Um, so yeah, you really got to like, yeah, you you've got to you're right. You got to kind of play with different fields and try different things out and show people that you can apply your research to different areas, right? Exactly. Um, apply your knowledge to different areas. So it's it's kind of a neat. It's a neat area, that's for sure. Um, so just sort of as a bit of a transition into your topic, um, you've done a lot of research into um, people with disabilities, obviously. Um, what are your thoughts? And I don't know if this is like an actual thing that has been um, studied or not, but but uh, it probably uh, probably has, but probably not by you on the scene. Um, how do you think, um, like, what, what is the current state, I guess, of people with disabilities in the research field? Because there may be some people with disabilities listening, you never know, right? Um, it, it's very hard to tell, obviously. And so, um, yeah, I, I'd love to know, um, do you know anything about the current state of that? Mm, concretely, no, I do not know a lot in that particular area but i do know that there is underrepresentation everywhere and i do know that supports are needed everywhere and that's not just unique to quebec that's not just unique to certain provinces that's universally support is needed uh, representation is needed and that's just that goes for everyone as well right all groups have the right or should have the right to be represented in all different types of career paths, academic streams, governments, everywhere aspect in society, because that's what's going to empower the younger individuals to want to pursue similar paths, right? And so it's difficult for individuals to not see themselves 
in other fields just because they're not able to see someone who is like them in that field. And so there needs to be a lot more room made and a lot more supports available to ensure more representation. For sure. That, that, that's, that's, um, that's a good point. Um, I guess it's sort of everywhere, but, but yeah, that's a really good point. Um, what's, um, are you able to break down your research a little bit? Why don't we start there? Um, take as much time as you want. Just go through whatever you'd like, um, whatever you think is important with your research with, um, uh, was it MIND? I believe that was the correct acronym. Yeah, cool. Um, so we're still in the process of completing research, beginning presentations and final paper. So it's, I'm not going to go too much into detail, but I will say that Actually, I'll give some context as to why I decided to apply for this research in the first place, because I think it'll really show where my passions are coming from and how I'm actually applying my knowledge to this project. So I volunteer in my first year with a club at McGill called Beyond Me, which pairs university students with special needs youth in a mentorship program. And essentially, the university students are spending time with these kids. Um, you know, helping them further their independence and self-autonomy or being able to have them, like, enable them to have a friend outside of their environment they've been stuck in for however long. And I've enjoyed my time there so much. I'm actually an executive there now as well, which is really cool. But with that research, I really began, with not that research, with that experience, I really began to notice that there is a lot wrong with the current system. So that's just a bit of a, a bit of context and seeing my buddy, as we call them, and the hurdles he has to face are so much more significant than those I personally have had to face when I was pursuing post-secondary education. And it's just really disheartening to see. And I was able to understand why there is such an apprehension of, you know, moving towards supported employment or moving towards some sort of post-secondary education pathway. And so, when I started this research, I went in with the mindset that I know there's something wrong, but I don't know exactly what it is. And then second to that, I don't know exactly what we can do to better that situation. And obviously as a political science student, I'm very interested in the policy aspect of things. So, you know, I came in not exactly sure where this research was going, but we're actually now writing a policy brief. So in my brief will be sent to appropriate ministry staff and the appropriate government staff in the province and will actually hopefully lead to some change because we were able to get some really great work done and have, we have a concrete list of recommendations. But my particular research, this project has five different working groups because different looking at different aspects of the lives of an individual with a disability, uh, including physical and physical health, mental health, um, housing and income supports, navigation, advocacy, and then continuing education and employment, which is my working group. And so through my working group, I'm kind of the student liaison assigned to the group. I coordinate interviews, I host interviews, transcribe interviews, perform research, um, go through academic and gray literature, find statistics and numbers, because if you have the numbers, the government's a lot more likely to listen to you. <laughs> and if you just go to them with a bunch of different philosophical solutions, right? And like making sure there's evidence to back up the claims we're making in our final reports. And 
at this point, we've gotten a really great idea of the current situation and why it is so problematic. And then, of course, there's a lot of great things going on. It's always good to, you know, kind of disclaim that as well. You know, there's a lot of great things happening in Canada, in the province of Quebec, in municipalities. There's so many exceptional individuals who are trying their best to provide a really high quality of care. But also the fact that this isn't standardized is what's really not right at the moment. So we're looking into that. And I've been, yeah, writing reports. Right now we're working on some presentations. We've been conducting some more interviews. We've kind of moved from the top, like executives and managers, and we're kind of going down the ladder to service providers, and it's been really interesting. And I'm also um, coincidentally taking a social policy course at McGill right now. So it's kind of, you know, <laughs> working off each other. I'm going into these interviews with an idea of, you know, what the ideal is in Canada based on my social policy professor, but also being able to see that this isn't the case and what needs to be done is completely different than what I initially had expected. So that's kind of as far in detail as I'm going to go. I don't really know exactly what my professor doesn't want to include, so that's as far as detail I'm going to go. But um, the reports will be coming out. I honestly have no idea. It's My internship was from June to September 30th, and it's now been extended to December with possibility of extension into next summer. So we'll have to see how things go. It's just everybody's... Oh, thank you. Everybody's learning so much, and everything is so much different than I was initially expected. There needs to be a lot of work done to figure out how everything is actually working together or not working together. For sure. Um, so, I guess here's, I don't know how much it, I don't know how much depth you want to go into and I'll, I'll let you, um, if you think that it's, um, uh, like I said, you can always cut things out, but if you think that um, you don't want to talk about it, that's fine too. Um, what uh, what do you think would be like? I guess key differences between a good, um, and, and this doesn't necessarily have to be like based on your research, just kind of like what you've seen, that sort of thing. Um, what what's are the key differences between good supports and systems and bad ones? I think the main thing is who's offering the support and who's offering the service. Um, something I've noticed not only from my research, but just in general, is that there's a lot of different groups providing the same thing, but there's no communication between them. So it's difficult to harmonize the provision of that service because there is no communication, and that's what leads to these differences and outcomes that we see all over the place, right? Like even if we look at um, school boards, in, back when I was in high school, different school boards have different expectations, different levels of instruction, different teachers, and that just leads to different outcomes for all students. Whether that's good or bad is, you know, up to the individual, but it's just something that's really become apparent to me as I've progressed in my research. And even I notice around me as I, you know, go to and from classes in McGill, you know, the professor really makes a difference on whether or not you're getting a good grade in that course, right? So uh, I think another thing is just a general awareness of what is available also varies greatly. 
And we've seen that in my research, for example, with a lot of different stakeholders. Um, some individuals know everything that's going on and some have no idea. And these stakeholders are communicating this information to the individuals and families. And so if there's not the same level of information being conveyed, then some individuals are going to know exactly what's available to them and how to pursue it and some aren't, and then that's what's going to lead to these individuals falling off the cliff because they don't know where to go. And again, that's just in general, not even for individuals with disabilities, but any type of program. If you don't know what's available, you're not going to be able to pursue it, and you're kind of going to find yourself stuck. You know, if you look at even internships, for example, if I didn't know where to look for internships, what am I going to do? Where am I going to find one? You know, am I going to Google internships and hopefully find something? Maybe, but, you know, you kind of need to know where your best places for reference are. And I think another key difference between good service provision and bad service provision would just be whether or not there is a standardization of the service in general. So we've seen that even like some provinces have standardized practices for certain services and some don't. And those that don't, it, they do have a lot more creativity at the local level of how that service is implemented or how it is offered to individuals. But then again, there's that issue of differences in outcomes. And while some individuals may be a lot better off because some areas can be more creative than others, there's still going to be more individuals who aren't receiving anything or aren't receiving adequate service. So summarizing that, um, <laughs> standardization of the service at least some sort of basic mandate for all involved actors to pursue would be is important. Also, you know, information is important and um, differences in outcomes are really apparent in systems that don't communicate with one another. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I, I have a lot to unpack there. Um a lot it's okay i've been doing no. this for a while so it's a lot i know <laughs> yeah no it's it's all good um so all right i'm just trying to think of what direction i want to go in this so i'll just ask a question briefly um what um so in terms of uh in terms of that standardization we were talking about um i'm assuming that would be at a government level um, of some form, um, is that, and I'm sure you can get into that, um, is, do you think that it's doable? Do you think that all services are standardizable or should be standardized? Or do you think that, um, like, are there any examples of, of I guess, service fields that, that you think might not um, need to be standardized or are good as they are? Okay, but to be fair, anything is possible in government if there's enough incentive for the government to pursue it, right? You look at clean drinking water. The federal government is more than capable of providing clean drinking water to indigenous communities, right? Mm -hmm. But what have we seen? It's not there. For example, okay. right? Exactly. I think that what really needs to happen before this standardization, if we think could should take place, is bringing everyone who is providing these services together and as well as individuals affected by these services and 
discussing best practices before implementing anything. Because as I had mentioned, the lack of communication is apparent and this lack of communication doesn't allow for individuals to re come together, figure out what's going well and what isn't going well and move forward. And I think that once we figure out what our pain points are and what is going well, we're not going to be able to say, oh, you know, every service should offer this in this sort of manner or have a government mandate the certain processes so that every school board follows the same protocols, for example. We just need communication <laughs> and we need collaboration and or at least the ability to listen. It doesn't necessarily need to lead to collaboration, but for too long, we've had individuals representing others, you know, when we might not even have a great idea of what the situation is actually like on the ground. I've been researching this for six months. I still don't have an idea, don't have a great idea of what things look like on the ground. You know, I'm going to interview people who are providing services and that gives me a better idea, but I'm never going to experience that myself. So I think we need to have others speak up for themselves as well. And that will better inform policy decisions in forms of standardization. Because I think we can all agree that having a basic level of service is a lot better than having none in some areas, a lot in others. But what that looks like really should come out of discussions with key stakeholders instead of the government deciding what is best for everyone involved, you know, without consulting others which is what unfortunately tends to happen with a lot of these marginalized groups in society is decisions are made for them when really what they need is empowerment and development of their own autonomy and, you know, self-reliance, not just reliance on the government. So, yeah, um, I agree with you there. Um, and, and I think that's very apparent as far as I can tell, but, um, now, you see that, like you said, with every marginalized group where um, people are making decisions for them, people are, are um, who really have no experience in that, with that, um, I guess, with those difficulties, with those challenges are coming in and, and making all the decisions for them and it's making assumptions and a lot of times those assumptions aren't right. Um, now, my thoughts, the first thing that comes to my mind is why, like, why and, and this is just more of an opinion question, but why do you think that um, some say some businesses are not um, are not consulting with with these groups, for example, um, like a, a, um, a disability service provider of some sort? Um, or I don't know if that's a proper terminology. Uh, there's probably a better word for that. But um, anyways, like a some form of a service. Um, who helps people with disabilities, why do you think that they, some of them don't consult? You would think if they're a business, they would want to get their, their clients and their customers, um, their, their feedback so that they could, you know, get more business, right? Um, logically, that would sort of make sense. But, but what, what do you think, why do you think that doesn't happen? I think there's two points to that. First point is just status quo. We see it specifically in government, groups are only now starting to be consulted on issues that pertain to them. 
this is only a new thing, but for most of the 150-something years that Canada has been a country, for example, we've seen that marginalized groups are often not consulted on issues that are important to them. So that's one thing. And even with businesses, the main focus is profit, right? And that brings me to funding. And funding, it, the way funding is allocated is often on based on individuals going in and out of the service, not on making sure that that service is quality. So there's no need to consult the individuals receiving the service when the only thing you're focusing on is trying to get more funding by getting more people in and out of the system. At that point, you're trying to make it as efficient as possible, and efficient doesn't necessarily mean what the individual may need at the time, right? So I think yeah. specifically with um, like community organizations that provide services, the way funding is allocated is a lot based on getting in and out, even with the government, actually, no, especially with the government, getting in and out, right? Because it's important that someone has something. Whether or not that something is good is relative, but whether or not there is something is what they're really looking for. And so really, it's the mindset we tend to have when we think about, and then again, that goes for every aspect of society, right? We look at like employment supports, employment services for us, you know, going into these youth employment services, it's important to have good, you know, CV building, good cover letters. And, but the main point is making sure we get from point A to point B not making sure that we are well supported getting from point A to point B. And for these individuals, unfortunately, that lack of support is what leads to not being able to arrive at their destination. But. That makes sense. So just to sort of sum it up before we kind of transition to our final third there, it's going really quick. Um, yeah. What's, um, just because I want to, and I know we've kind of touched on a lot of this throughout this discussion, but, um, what would be, um, I don't want to assign a number, but some calls to action that you would have for governments, um, various levels of government, what would you, um, what would your calls to action be? Hmm, my calls to action? First, listen. Not just to me, not just to my academics, my fellow academics, but to everyone affected by the status quo, not just us, those of us who decide to write about it and decide to research it. Um, second would be a decision needs to be made about whether or not the majority of services should be centralized and provided by the government or whether the government is, should rely on community programs to provide these services. Um, there's often a tension in many aspects in society on whether community groups or the government should play the, law, the greater role in providing services. This is my social policy class talking, not just my research, but um, that's an important tension that should be addressed. And at least there should be some sort of decision made because the indecisiveness of moving back and forth between, oh, we're going to provide this, but we're going to fund everyone else to do this. There'd be a lot more clarity for families, especially in those affected, if they knew who to turn to and it wasn't just Oh, sometimes, you know, go to the government. Sometimes, you know, you can go to your social worker. Sometimes, you know, you can come into this employment support center and we'll try to find you someone. Maybe if we, you know, if you qualify. But if you qualify, if you don't qualify, you know, go to this person. 
and just all of this redirection and reorientation is just confusing and honestly discouraging for a lot of individuals. Um, another thing would just be just really go through a critical analysis of funding structures as well as what a successful outcome is because well before you know of course getting from somewhere into somewhere else is great like finishing a service or going through an employment training program is great but whether or not you're actually able to pursue supported employment or adapted employment situation or another academic pathway because there's so many different pathways an individual can pursue in life, right? Like you and I, we go, we chose to go to university. We could have gone into the workplace. We could have gone into college. We could have gone straight into the workforce, gotten a trade. There's so many different pathways. And that's not just for us. That's for all individuals. And so recognizing that there are these different pathways. And if you're not coming together and helping these individuals lead lives of quality, then what is the point of the service you're providing? Because if it's not to better the individual and to better their life trajectory, what are you really doing? Like, is it a no, is it no. a t tax rebate? Is it a you know like it, it it needs to be more than just getting someone as a being assigned a number in and out of a program. That doesn't but, do um, much of anything, yeah. I guess assigning a number and just it's just it's just government expense at the end of the day. It's um. Or like it's you know, um, it's it's just expenses. That's kind of all it is, right? And and yeah, and I like I don't want to discount. Yeah, and I don't want to discount a lot of the work that is being done. The government has done a oh, yeah. lot of work. Like I don't want to, make I don't want to make it seem like I'm like going against everything. But like there's a lot of great work happening, and there's a lot of great work that has been done. And I and we all recognize that, and we all really appreciate that. It's just there's more work to be done as we move forward. You know. As representation is increased and as more people are able to pursue different pathways and are empowered to develop soft and hard employment skills or their own self-autonomy, you know, we need to keep moving forward with that momentum and further enable individuals to do so, right? Because, yes, improvements are good and it's good to go back through, you know, a review by an ombudsman and, you know, everything is going well, but things could always be going better. And that's what kind of needs to be our perspective instead of, you know, there's that brief moment of appreciation, but then again, there's also, okay, this is great. How can we make it even better? And how could we affect even more people in a more positive way? And, you know, because it's not just vote seats at the end of the day, it's lives we're dealing with, right? So. Well, I think the other thing too, um, and perhaps I don't know if, what your thoughts are on it, but is that things change over time, right? People's needs change over time. Um, it's not like, you know, you can do like, if the government went out today and just did like a massive, like, um, talk to every person who has a disability, right? Like, did like the most amazing sort of listen, active listening sort of a, a setup where they took everything into account. Um, you know, like, say, five years down the road, things may change, right? Um, 10 years down the road, things may change and, and people's needs may change. Um, and so being adaptable, I guess, is, is something that, uh, from my opinion, from my perspective, seems to be important. Yeah, that's an excellent point, too. And something we've even noticed is that, you know, sometimes some people may want to stay somewhere 
for the rest of their lives. They may enjoy what they're doing at the moment, and they may want to continue with that. And that's 100% okay. Everybody has the right to choose what they want to do. But for those individuals who want to move on to something different, there needs to be something available that enables them to do so. They shouldn't just be stuck. Because, right, there's a difference between being there and being stuck. So, and, like, that's the thing. A lot does change in our lives, you know? We all pursue different pathways. It's likely we're going to have more than one different type of job or career over time. And it's important that those pathways are recognized for all individuals, not just us in general, but everyone who maybe, maybe have different levels of ability, may, you know, have different interests, different life goals or trajectories and yeah for sure that's uh that sums it up very well um yeah so in that case i guess let's move on to our sort of final section there mm -hmm. um kind of i like to i like to sort of it sort of feels like we're going back to the beginning with this but it also is sort of like um if we go back to like the first section, kind of, but it's also using your research. So it's, it's okay. I, I like to say it's like an abstraction of what we just talked about. Right. So I guess sort of getting started. Um, you know, I'll jump in with a hard question. Um, I have two and they go hand in hand, but I'm going to ask them separately. So my first question for you on that is, um, like you've done your research, you know, you, you, um, you're getting near the end, you're sort of, you know, I guess, compiling things, if you want to say that. Um, what, what regret do you have? What do you wish you had done differently? Is there a different, um, uh, different avenue you wish you had explored? Is there a different take you wish you took on it? Um, or are you just happy with what you did? I mean, that's quite possible. I mean, I like to be hypercritical of myself, so this is a great question, <laughs> just in general. But, you know, I find it helps. Um, I think something I could have definitely done differently is relied more on, and this kind of also goes for not just research, but any aspect of life, I guess, is rely on those around you, you know? It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to be uncertain. Like, when I first started, I was so focused on trying to impress my professor to make her help have her keep me on the project, right, that I didn't think I had to ask questions and I would be able to figure it out on my own. And while I was able to, it took a lot more time than if I just sent her an email, you know, hey, Dr. Log, what does this mean? And I know for a fact now she would have answered no problem. I think that we tend to think our success is based on us figuring things out on our own and being able to come to a conclusion ourselves because that's what we're kind of taught in school. You need to be able to figure things out by yourself. You need to be able to rely on yourself and be independent. But sometimes you need support. And I've needed support a, a few times throughout this internship and throughout my research. And I just decided to push through it myself. And that was just a lot of unnecessary stress. And, well, you know, because, because I think, um, I think like those professors, they, or like your mentor, whoever it may be, they know more than you and they've been researching for longer than you. And so totally. they're almost like Google, but easier, you know, like exactly. it's like, yeah. And it's scary talking to them, even like professors in my regular classes in my first year, I did not talk to any of my professors because I was scared, you know, 
they've studied the subject for at least 10 years if they're if you're tenure track prof much much longer but like at the end of the day this is obviously something they must be passionate about if they've done it for so long and if you're passionate about something you want to share information to everyone you can right so there really is no harming going up and asking a question or sharing something you found in insightful and even if you you know go up to them it also helps finding future research if you have a good uh, relationship with the professors but you know knowing that you're not alone even if you are performing research um, and you are one of the key researchers in a certain position there's resources everywhere you know go to your librarian and ask for help if you're having difficulties with with lit review or talk to your professor if you're having difficulty finding certain services or email members of your working groups if you're having issues understanding what a certain service does and why how it's different from something else like you're not going to reap the benefits of the internship if you just try to figure it out on your own because while you may be able to get to where you want to be you're going to be a lot better off if you learn how to utilize your network to your advantage as well because that will come in handy later on in life i'm hoping anyway <laughs> but for sure um, I think with, with, um, honestly a bit of a side note, but I think with like LinkedIn, the advent of LinkedIn and this sort of like mass professional network that people are, are building, I think yeah. that there's, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays into, um, into the, the world, like 10 years down the line, you know, um, oh, the fact that you can just have these networks, you know, of like thousands of people and it's like, oh yeah, I have a person for that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's really cool. Um, I'm going to ask my second question and it's, it's very similar, but it's also a little bit different. Um, it's the same kind of thinking, but so most papers have future areas of research, right? You know, it's like a, oh yeah, this is how you would continue, um, the research if you wanted to. Um, and you know, if, if you don't have an act, if you don't actually have a future of research in your, in your manuscript, I mean, that's, that's fine. Um, it, it, it happens. Um, but, you know, you can still think about, about, um, about uh, you know, various possible future avenues. Um, what, if you were, I don't know, let's say that you, you know, money was no object, time was no object. You had like, you know, um, someone who's willing to fund you and give you great money to go out and do some, some good research. Um, what future area of research um, from that project would you continue and do? Hmm. That's a good question. Money was no object. It would be very nice if money was no object. But <laughs> um, honestly, I think I would continue something similar to this because I find that like doing an environmental scan is a very interesting process and learning about everything is a very interesting process. And now that we've learned about everything and have made recommendations, I think cool um, path of research would then be going more at the individual level and collecting data on perceptions of government performance or of, of community organization performance of these services to kind of match it with what I've already done in terms of what's available, what we perceive as the um, difficulties and what we've come to find are major recommendations that could be possible. I think also, as a political science student, I love everything Canadian politics, so something in a political 
regime kind of study or voting behaviors would be interesting. Um, or even my work with CoronaNet IR has become has come onto my radar. I first started university. I was like, I only want to study Canadian politics. I don't think any other aspect of politics is interesting. And, I mean, political theory is kind of dry. But <laughs> um, IR is really interesting as well. So even like comparative analysis of COVID-19 responses and kind of building on that. Um, there's a potential internship next summer on the radar for that right now for me as well. So I'm looking into that. But that actually might be my next direction of research. We'll have to see. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's pretty pretty awesome. And one of the reasons I like to do that is because it sort of, um, I think it sort of reflects, or so the reason I asked that question is it sort of reflects the idea that like, and I don't know if you've experienced this, but like once you get to the end of research, like there's sort of a point where you just say, okay, I think that's kind of it, you know? Um, I think this is, you have to, how do I phrase this? You have to sort of clearly define a scope of the research and just like a boundary and say, okay, this is where we're drawing it because we don't want to have like a, you know, 100 page manuscript, right? Um, yeah. We want to keep this like, we want to focus on this very specific um, area. So I think, I think that um, that's sort of one of the, the, I guess, emotions that I like to try and, or like feelings, I guess, that I like to try and showcase once you're done research is like that idea that like, oh yeah, I can go do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, right? When you start research, you go down one path, but then like, you know, 10 more come up when you get to the end, right? Um, yep. And so like, yeah, it, it's it's kind of crazy how much things, I guess, I don't want to use the word snowball because I guess that is a negative connotation, but they just sort of, sort of spread and you get all these opportunities. It's just great. Um, so, so yeah, I totally agree. Um, all right, so my... I think, yeah, one sort of, I guess, question that I've had in my mind um, when we were talking before, um, I guess it doesn't really fit into this section, but it's fine, it'll, it'll, it'll be fine. Um, how do you read a, uh, or how do you suggest people approach um, reading an academic article, an academic journal article? Oh, good question. Okay, so I was recently made aware that not a lot of people I know read for their classes and read academic articles so great great timing on that question um but i just perfectionism and i need to please my professors read everything i'm assigned so i've kind of learned how to read from that but also when you're reviewing like hundreds of different articles it takes a long time to get through you need to figure out the best way to skim through abstracts are your best friend when you're initially looking at um, articles, if you're trying to find good resources, abstracts best friend. Also keywords that are mentioned at the beginning of an article, also amazing. I know for a lot of that da um, databases for articles that universities offer, um, if you type in the keywords and quotation marks in the search op function, it'll give you the articles with associated with those keywords. And then that makes it easier for you to find articles. Um, but for reading, I think, what I like to do is read in it, read it in its entirety and highlight points in the introduction, the findings, and discussion. Um, of course, if you're, that's for my kind of 
degree, political science, I'm more interested in what they're finding and how they're analyzing things. If I was in a statistical methods course or a quantitative analysis course, I would obviously want to read the methods. But for my particular case, I find a lot of value in reading how they do things and reading the methods and seeing how it works, but more so focusing on those outcomes and what's most important. So like, for example, I take notes on all my readings for class. I would read the article and highlight as I go, and then either copy and paste or type what I've highlighted into a separate document so that when I'm going over the readings later, I see those key points, and that's what I associate with the reading. That's how I've come to do it over the years. I used to write out everything, and then I found that took way too long, and then when you're in university, you know it's important to retain the information, but you got to be efficient as well. Yeah. So, especially when you're getting, you know, hundreds of pages of reading per week. And in research, yeah. same thing. There's hundreds, sometimes thousands of articles you may have to go through. Rely on that abstract. <laughs> and even if you can search in the article for certain terms that pertain specifically to your research, and if they're not present, that gives you a good idea of what's available as well. But then for that, you also need to know different variations of that term that may be applied as well. Like if I'm talking about voting behavior i could say voting behavior i could say voting habits voting voter analysis voter choices you know identific voter identifications there's a bunch of different ways of saying it so you also need to know the different ways of phrasing a certain term as well for sure um last question um so i want to wrap this up uh what do you have any sort of last minute pieces of advice or thoughts um, for someone who is interested in getting into research? Thoughts? It looks daunting at first, and your first research experience is going to be really hard because you're adjusting to a new style of learning, but embrace it. You know, it's going to be hard finding a position. That's okay. When you Once you find something and you're looking back in hindsight, it's going to be, you know, I'm glad I struggled and I was able to get here because now I know the value of my position and the value of what I'm doing. If it was that difficult to find something, then it's really worth finding. Also, in that same respect, going through your research, it's difficult to start. You don't know what to do when you start. Guidance is key, but also enjoy it. You know, it's not every day you're going to get to study something that's actually going to may have an effect on people in the long run. And that's really empowering. And that's really cool that you're able to contribute to that academic stream, to that political issue, to that sort of theor theoretical implication. Being able to contribute is a feat in itself. So enjoy that while also, you know, struggling. But struggling is normal. It's fine. And um, lastly, ask for references. <laughs> Main key. I still need to do that, but ask for references. <laughs> Um, because these people are going to get to know you really well by the end of your research, and they're going to know exactly how you work and what your work ethic is like, so they will make excellent references in the future. Well, in that case, um, thanks for the conversation. That was some great advice. Um, thanks for the conversation, and uh, yeah, that was a great, um, great talk. Yeah, thanks so much, Ben. Have a great day. Oh, see you later. For sure. Okay. Bye.